0: in service this morning welcome everyone and we also welcome you to all stand as we sing our prelude amazing grace
1: isn't it wonderful that every morning god's grace is new and we get to celebrate that we get to celebrate his grace
2: his forgiveness his
1: love and his mercy let's focus on him this morning mm-hmm. Grace that taught my heart to hear And grace my fears relieved How precious did that grace appear The hour I first believed My chains are
0: Good morning. Welcome everyone here uh, in attendance at First Church, along with those that are listening on the radio and watching on Facebook Live. Not too many announcements this morning, but we'll have a few. The next wonderful Wednesday meal is July 28th. Please invite your friends and neighbors to join us or pick up a meal for someone who might like one. There's going to be a praise and prayer night here at the church on August 15th at 7 p.m., Community is invited for a time of worship, prayer, and music led by our praise team. And the church is looking for sound technicians. Sam's headed off to college and Zane's moving away for a job. They've done a great job and we hope they will both be back to help over breaks and holidays. If you know of anyone interested in learning, please talk to Greg Kramer or Pastor Joel. And now, for all those who are able, we'll begin worship with our call to worship. If you'd like to stand and join me. call to worship this morning comes from Psalm book 119, chapter 119, verses 105 to 112. <clears throat> your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept the Lord, the willing praise of my mouth teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever, They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your degrees to the very end. Now we will continue to stand and sing hymn number 275, How Firm a Foundation. Thank you. be seated, and we'll now invite the children to come forward for children's chat with Carolyn. Here's
2: your bowl. <laughs> Here so you can see what's going on a picture here, don't I? Huh? Can you see it? What is this? What's that picture? Bird? You have birds at your house? Yeah. Yes. These are sparrows. They're every place, aren't they? They build nests in trees. They build nests in houses. They build nests in McDonald's signs. Do you ever see the bird nest in the McDonald's sign? You look the next time. You'll see them. There'll be birds up there, and then they go chip
1: chip 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 chip. Oh.
2: That this bird has the most birds of any in the whole world.
1: And and I saw a lot of birds today.
2: You saw yellow birds today? No,
1: I saw a lot of
2: birds. A lot of birds today. Yes. And this is—they're not—they're not really just real pretty, are they? Are they real pretty? Mm-hmm. They're just kind of plain and ordinary. Well, the Bible tells us. That one of these birds, if it falls, God knows it. That little tiny bird, if he falls, God knows it. God is like so awesome. That means he watches over these little birds, and you're a lot more special to God than the little birds, aren't you? So if he watches over these little tiny birds, who else is he watching over? Us, that's right, all of us, you guys and everybody out there and everybody watching. So in the book of Matthew chapter 10, it talks a lot about sparrows and stuff and birds, that God takes care of them, but they don't have to worry about where they're going to get clothes or food or anything. It's all right there. So God knows and loves you so much that he knows what's going on in your life. You know he knows how many hair are in your head? Like, whoa, that'd be a lot, isn't it? He knows a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, think about all that hair. Now, some people don't have as much to count as others, but that's all right, too. But he still knows how much hair is on your head. And if he knows that much, he knows everything that's going on in your life. He knows when you're happy. He knows when you're sad. He knows when you're maybe not behaving right. But he knows when you do good things in his name. So he's a pretty awesome God and knows everything. He really does know everything. So when you're happy or afraid or anything like that, God is there watching you. And he's going to take really good care of you. He loves you so much. He loves you more than all the birds in the world. And he loves them too. Isn't that special? You know there's a song that talks about that. People have sung it here before. And it has a chorus. And we're all going to sing it together. It goes like this. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow. And I know he watches me. Can you sing that? Well, let's everybody sing that, okay? I see. god you pray and care for the little birds and you even care more for us thank you why should we ever worry when you're watching over us god bless us all and keep us safe in jesus name we pray amen thank you
3: amen thank you carolyn and great singing kids what a great children's chat to remind us of the importance and value of prayer, as well as we turn to that point in our service. You know, if God's eye is on the sparrow and if He watches over them, how much more does He watch over and care for us? Thank you, Carolyn, for that message, and what a great, as I said, segue into prayer this morning. Um, I do want to encourage you to be in prayer for our offering, which we we're about to collect. Uh, the offering today goes to support um, the Kusel Mission Church in Germany. Um, this is a church that that. A few of us are very well familiar with, but all of you as a church are familiar with it. We've sent work teams to help them in 2016 and 2017 in the renovation and construction of their church building. Uh, The parts that we have worked on in particular are completed, but there are still areas in the church Uh, the upper floors that they're working on to accommodate the rest of the ministry that is going on there. So our offering today is going to go towards that project, and I encourage you to give as you are able to give this morning as the deacons come forward to collect the offering. Our special music is provided by Sue Leffel this morning.
4: will walk with god from I'm yeah.
3: continue to give thanks together by worshiping the Lord with our next praise song, Make Room. I invite you to remain standing for this.
1: Whatever.
3: Said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you invite all of us to come to you and to lay our burdens at your feet. Thank you, Lord, that you invite us that we are weary and burdened, and it is in you and you alone that we will find rest for our souls. Lord God, we come to you this morning with a variety of joys and concerns, praises and prayers. But we come to you and you alone to meet our needs. So we thank you and praise you for the joys that we experience in this life, knowing that all good and perfect gifts come from you. And we praise you and thank you, Lord, not just for the gift, not just for the blessing, but because you are the one who provided for us. And Lord, we also lift up all of those praises and prayers and concerns that we carry into this room with us. Whether we're gathered here in person, whether listening on the radio or watching on Facebook, Lord, we we come to you now and lay these concerns and burdens at your feet. We ask, Lord, for your will to be done in these situations, knowing, Lord, that you care even for the sparrows How much more will you care for us, your people? And so, Lord, we surrender all this to you, our joys and our sorrows, our our hopes, our dreams, our, our fears, our doubts. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us in the midst of the valley. Lord, our greatest hope, our greatest encouragement is that you are with us no matter where we go, that you will never leave nor forsake your people. And so we praise you and thank you for that. And we hold on to that promise no matter what life brings. We also this day pray for the church in Kusel, Germany. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you, Lord, for the impact that they're having in their community and especially, Lord, in the refugee and immigrant community there. And we ask for your continued blessing and your continued provision for them in that ministry. We ask, Lord, that the work in their building would continue to grow so that they would have the space and the opportunity to continue to minister in a variety of ways. And we ask, Lord, as we pray that for a church on the other side of the world, we also ask that you would provide for us here at First Church. Help us to be the body of Christ in our community. Help us to make an impact for your kingdom and for your gospel, whether, whether in our community, in our workplace, with our neighbors, and our families, Lord. We ask that you would work in and through us to accomplish your will. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom... In the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
5: The scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it.
3: Thank you. Let's pray together again. Father God, as we open your word together, I pray that you would guide our hearts and minds into your truth. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give me words to speak and open up all of our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you again this week. Uh, Very grateful for Pastor Kim filling in uh, last week and providing the message for us and leading us in communion. Um, And always grateful for uh, the opportunity uh, that you all have as a church to hear from other voices. You know, you hear from me most of the time. Uh, It's always great to hear Pastor Tori preach a message, but it's also good to have someone like Pastor Kim come in who is so familiar with all of you to, to fill the pulpit and to preach as well. So, But I am certainly glad to be back and to be able to, to dive back into the book of Revelation with you and these letters to the seven churches. As I was preparing the message uh, for this morning, I was reminded of the time I went on a mission trip to Mexico. This is my freshman year of high school. We went with our youth group, and it was the first time that I personally had ever been well, I can't say I've been, I hadn't been out of the country because I've been to Canada, but it was the first time I'd ever been in a place where I, it was very obvious that I was out of my element and, and very much a minority in a lot of very real practical ways. Um, there was obviously a language barrier. As we traveled to Mexico, The really the only people that spoke... Good, consistent English was our host family. And so trying to communicate with the people we were working alongside and the people we interacted with in the village was, was very difficult. And it was, it was um, frustrating at times, but also encouraging to see how we could overcome that language barrier in different ways. But as we were traveling, and this is the part that sticks out to me the most, this is the moment when I knew that I was no longer in Kansas, uh, was that was that when we were traveling, we flew into, I believe it was Arizona. We stayed the night in a church there, and then we took a coach bus down to Hermosillo, Mexico, which is the closest large city to where we were traveling. And from there, four hours through the desert, with no air conditioning, to get to the village where we were going to be working, which is called Puerto de la Libertad on the Gulf. It was on the, it was a coastal village on the Gulf of California. And as we were traveling through the desert, we were literally sitting on top of our luggage because we had no other place to put it. Uh, we got about halfway there, and our bus broke down on the side of the road. And when I mean in the middle of nowhere, I mean absolutely in the middle of nowhere. The bus starts Some smoke starts pouring out from under the hood and our youth pastor has us all get off the bus and kind of walk away for a little bit as they try to figure out what's going on. I remember we as a group kind of gathered together and prayed that that the bus would start working again. And as we did that, I kid you not, a tumbleweed blew across the road. Now, I didn't know those things were even real. I thought that was something in a cartoon that they just made up. But we, no kidding, saw tumbleweed blow across the road in front of us. Um after, after a stressful half an hour or so and a lot of prayer, thankfully the bus did start back up again and we were able to get the rest of the way to the village that we were, that we were staying in. That was a, it was a very interesting experience for me as a young person because, like I said, it was the first time that I'd really been out of my element and in a place and for a longer period of time where I felt like I was in a minority, now, the reason I bring this up with you this morning is because Jesus, through the Apostle John, is writing a letter to the church in Pergamum. And he makes it very clear that these Christians are living as minorities in this city. Not, he, he's writing them as Christians in exile. And I don't mean a literal or physical exile like the Israelites in the Old Testament. They weren't captured and, and relocated to this place. This was very likely for most of them their hometown. So they weren't exiles in a literal sense, but they were a sort of spiritual exiles in this community. They were among a minority of believers in a, in a culture, in a town that, that lived a very different kind of lifestyle than they were attempting to do by following Christ. Now, Paul, now, now the New Testament makes it pretty clear that all Christians, to one extent or another, are living in exile, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, right? That our, that our main allegiance is not here in this world, but it is to Christ in heaven. He also says that we are ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I know I've talked about this at another time, but just a reminder, an ambassador's role was to live in foreign territory, right? To promote the agenda and the purposes and the goals of their hometown, of their excuse me, their home country. So as ambassadors for Christ, we are living in a, in a culture, in a, in a world, in a society that is not aligned with Christ. And we are trying to live faithfully for him. Exactly like these Christians in Pergamum were doing in the first century. Their truth is, right, that following Jesus, no matter what time period we live in, following Jesus is going to put us at odds with the culture that we live in, right? The secular culture that, that is around us. One of the early statements of faith from the, in the early church was a simple one. It was simply, Jesus is Lord. And that was a very profound yet simple statement. Or simple yet profound statement. It was simple in the sense that it didn't take much to remember it, right? It didn't take much to, to say it. Yet the significance was in what it, what it implied for the life of the believer. Because to say that Jesus is Lord was to say that Caesar was not. Right, to say that Jesus is Lord means that the culture and the values of the society that we live in is not. Jesus understood this, right? He understood that his followers, both in his time and in future generations, were gonna be living as spiritual exiles, no matter where they were. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, he prayed for his disciples, and he said in John chapter seventeen, verses fourteen through sixteen He said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they were not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now we're actually going to be digging into this passage at a future date later this summer. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but notice what Jesus is saying here, right? He says that that he acknowledges that the disciples are not of the world, right? We are not going to be at home in the world that we live in. But yet his prayer isn't that they be removed from the world. His prayer isn't that God would somehow cloister them and and seclude them and protect them in that way. but But that they would be in the world but not of the world. That God would protect them while they were living in the world. And that's going to be our focus here as we look at what jesus says to the church in pergamum we see that that they too were living in a society in a town where they were the spiritual minorities and we're going to see what that means for them here in just a moment But let's look at what revelation 2 verses 7 12 through 17 says for us as we've done in the previous weeks let's start with a reflection on on the description of jesus and like The other two letters that we've studied, this description of Jesus comes directly out of the description we see in Revelation chapter 1. Here Jesus is described as the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Now that's a familiar symbol, a familiar description. Uh, The the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth represents the word of God. We see that in Revelation 1.18, but we also see it in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. There the author says, The Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So Jesus here is being described, is being presented as the one who is speaking the Word of God. It is literally coming out of his mouth here in this this vision. And it is God's Word that, that is the focus here God's word is spoken through Christ how many of you have Bibles that if you were to flip to the Gospels in the New Testament uh, many many Bibles do this but not all they have Jesus's words in red are you guys familiar with that how some Bibles do that and it's a helpful tool because if you're scanning you know if you're looking for a particular passage or just skimming over something you can see what words Christ spoke versus what words were simply supplied by the author of that text or what somebody else may have spoken. And and I think it's a very helpful tool, but we can also get we can also misuse that because if we're honest with ourselves, the word of God is the word of God, right? And if we want to be if if we're if we're truthful to what God's Word says, all of the letters should be in red, right? Because all of it is spoken in and through Christ. It's it's coming through his Holy Spirit and in all of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, is the word of God. And so in one sense, all of the letters could be read letters because it is all given in and through Jesus, who himself is described as the word of God. All right, Jesus, not only do we have God's word to help us understand who God is and what he has planned for us, we also have Jesus himself, whose scripture describes as the full revelation of God. If we want to know what God's like, if we want to know what his character is like, if we want to know how he intends to act in the world. We have to look no further than Jesus himself. Hebrews one verse three says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And again in Colossians one fifteen it says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Scripture is very clear that Jesus is the full revelation of God, that if we want to know what God's like, all we have to do is look at Him, and that ultimately, all the promises of Scripture are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Clearly as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. In other words, it's not going back and forth. It's not wishy-washy, right? It's not inconsistent. Verse 19, for the son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Why is all this important? Why is John describing Jesus as this, this figure with this word of God coming out of his mouth? Because Jesus and the Word of God are the foundation of our faith. And for a and for Christians who are living in a culture in a world that is not in line with Christ, our hope is in Christ and in his word. That is where our hope lies. So let's continue on in this passage in Revelation 2. Once again, Jesus says, I know. Remember, he sees the people, and no matter Their condition, good, bad, or otherwise, Jesus is intimately aware of of what's going on in the world and the condition his people are in. And here he sees their faithfulness in the midst of the secular, evil, anti-Christian culture. Jesus describes Pergamum as the place where Satan lives. Now, that's pretty strong language, isn't isn't it? The place where Satan dwells. Now, the reason... You know, there, there's a couple, there's, there's kind of two levels to this. One is that Pergamon was a very important city. In fact, it was the leading city in the area. And so it's very likely that it had a temple for the imperial cult, which means for Christians in Pergamon, there was a very real danger to pledge allegiance to Jesus rather than Caesar because it was expected of them to worship Caesar. Right to pay homage to to bring offerings to the imperial temple in order to participate in normal life. Remember when I said Jesus as Lord was an early Christian pledge? It was an early Christian um, statement of faith. Well, for them that would have had very real practical implications. To follow Jesus meant to not follow Caesar. And so Jesus acknowledges this and then command, commends them for holding fast to him and not denying the faith, even in the face of persecution. Right? Faithful Christians will face opposition in this world, and that may come in all different shapes and forms. Right? I'm not saying that, that the kind of opposition we face in America is the same as Christians in North Korea or Christians in China. There are different kinds of persecution. There's different kinds of opposition. But the reality is that trying to faithfully follow Christ in a fallen world means that we are going to face opposition of one form or another. He even mentions one individual by the name of Antipas who he calls his faithful witness. That even though this person was killed for their faith, they remained faithful. Now the word witness here in this passage is, uh, is the word, in the Greek, is the word martyr. Does that sound familiar? Have ever heard that word? Right? We use the word martyr today to describe someone who suffers for the cause of Christ. Someone who maybe even gives their life for the faith rather than denounce Jesus. So this person was a martyr. They had given their life to, for, for the cause of Christ. And Jesus commends him here for that. And holds him up as an example for the rest of the church to follow. Antipas remained faithful because he clung to Jesus, right? He held fast to the one person, the one thing in this world that would not let him go. There's a, there's a modern hymn that is really powerful. It's by Keith and Kristen Getty, the same people who wrote In Christ Alone and some other songs you're probably familiar with, and it's called He Will Hold Me Fast. In fact, I think we've sung it here uh, once or twice before. But I want to read the lyrics to you because it reminds us that that even in our troubles, even in our doubts, even in our uncertainty, Christ will hold us fast. It says, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Right? That's the hope we have, Right, is that he holds on to us. Right, So Antipas is an example for us to follow, that he clung to the one person who would not let him go, that would not fail him, because Christ is our Savior. Christ is the one who will hold on to us in the midst of whatever opposition we face. So for them, it was a very real, very practical um, experience, right? This, this place where Satan dwelled was a reference to the, to the direct opposition they faced in their particular context. But the reality is, as I said, that we face opposition as well, right? Satan, the great enemy of God, opposes the work of the church no matter when or where the church exists, right? Jesus, but the promise is, right, that, that the church will prevail, the big C church, God's church, will prevail. In Matthew 16:18, right, there's this, great, there's this great confession by Peter, right, that he is the Christ, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? Satan will try to distract us. He will try to keep us off mission. He will try to keep our focus off of Christ in, in whatever way he can. But the promise of God is that he will not prevail, Right, that God's church will survive. Jesus goes on here to encourage the encourage the church then to not compromise in their faith, even as they held fast to Jesus and to not deny the faith. Jesus also says that there are some who compromise by allowing the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to infiltrate the church. Now, I don't, again, I don't want to dwell on the specifics of, of their particular teachings because, one, it's, it's not very clear, but we can also, get, we also need to remember that, that sin in all of its shapes or forms can certainly have an impact on our world, and it may look different from one church to the next. But the reality is that, that sin, is a rea- sin is real, and we need to be aware of the effects it can have on us as individuals, in our communities, in our world, but also on us as a church. He mentions here idolatry and sexual immorality, two of the most persistent and devastating sins in Scripture. Right? And so he's, what, the, there's this picture being painted here of, of Christians who are holding fast to Jesus with one hand, but also holding on to these secular anti-Christ, anti-Christian beliefs in their other hand. But we know that it's impossible to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we're also holding on to the world. Right? Jesus says that we cannot serve two masters. We either love one and hate the other, or we'll serve one and despise the other. Right? That's not possible. But yet it's a it's a it's a temptation that we all face day in and day out. There's a term for it, it's called syncretism. It's it's when we take it's when we hold on to Christian beliefs in one hand and hold on to to the values and ideals that the culture is espousing on the other, and we, and we blend them together. We end up distorting the truth of God's Word. We treat God's Word like a spiritual buffet, taking what we, what we like and leaving what we don't like, and then filling in the gaps with other elements that don't come from Scripture. And so Jesus tells them here that they must repent or else. He says that he will make war against them with the sword of his mouth. Again, the word of God. See, God's word convicts us of our sin. The image of God's word being a sword to the point. And it divides, right? The reason I believe it's such a powerful image is because the law, God's word, reveals our sinful nature to us. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And so Jesus says he's going to make war against them with the word of his mouth. saying God's word is going to confront us with the reality of our sin. We, in, in, in doing so, we have a choice to make. We can repent and return to God or reject his grace and his authority and perish. Right? To those who repent, Jesus' return and God's word are sources of comfort, strength, and hope. They're comfort, strength, and hope because they teach us that, that none that all, even though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all are saved by his grace through the sacrifice that was made on the cross. But to those who reject Christ, his return and his word are to be feared because they mean judgment, because God's word is truth. All right, so, so we need to be aware of the world that we live in. We need to be aware of the culture that God has placed us in. And there's three things briefly that I want to point out to us that are dangerous about our culture, three values that go against Scripture and go against what it means to truly follow Christ. One is that our culture, our modern culture, tends to encourage us to, to be self-centered, to find our identity and truth in ourselves rather than in Christ and His Word. But we need to be careful with that, right? Because we, if, if all truth is centered on ourselves, then my truth is going to be different than your truth, right? And, and what's true for us here may be true, different, uh, a different kind of truth than what is found out there. See how dangerous that can be? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he'll make your path straight. The only truth, the only consistent truth, the absolute truth is found not in ourselves, not in following our heart, but in following God's word and putting our hope in him and in him alone. In fact, the original sin in Genesis 3 is, this, is described as in one way is deciding right and wrong for ourselves rather than trusting in God's word and his promises. Another way that, our, that we, uh, another dangerous aspect of our culture is that it encourages us to seek our own pleasure rather than seeking God's glory. Everything in our society revolves around comfort, around pleasure, around escaping from responsibility. But the call to follow Christ is a call to take up our cross, not a call to comfort. It's a call to glorify God in everything we do, even in the uncomfortable. It means making decisions not for our own sake, but for the sake of the gospel, for the advancement of his kingdom. Our culture also teaches us to value what is temporary, to value immediate gratification rather than what is eternal, right? I love Amazon Prime, don't get me wrong. To be able to order something and in a day or two it shows up on my doorstep is fantastic, right? But our entire culture is built around this idea that we need to be satisfied now and, and our, our reward needs to be immediate, right? And that, that promotes a, a culture where we focus on the immediate and the temporary rather than what is eternal. But what is eternal will last, obviously, and so we need to engage our culture, not compromise with it. We need to engage our culture because we need to know how it affects us, just as I just shared for a few minutes. Our culture affects us in ways that sometimes we don't even realize. When we were on vacation this past week, we were in the, on the beach in the ocean, and I was out in, in the water with Josephine, and we were hopping over the waves and just enjoying ourselves out there. And, and before long, we were a couple hundred feet down the beach from where we started, without us even realizing it. Right, that's what a, that's what the current does. It pulls you along, and that's what our culture does too. If we're not aware of how that current is pulling us, we can't push back against it. We need to know how our culture, what a culture is teaching us, and how it affects us, so that we can be aware of how it affects us, so that we can live faithfully for Christ in that culture. But we also need to know our culture so that we know how to engage it with the gospel, right? The gospel doesn't change, but how we communicate it does. And so each new generation, each new community, right? We need to to know how to engage it so that we can share the good news of the gospel with the people that we meet. I was told once that every church, every local church is one generation away from dying out. If we don't as a church learn how to communicate the gospel, the eternal truth of God's word to the next generation or to believers or unbelievers in the the world, then our church is one generation from dying out. We need to be able to communicate the truth of God's word to to a culture that values things differently than we do. Not to compromise the gospel, but to speak the eternal truth of the gospel in a way that they can understand and receive it. And so we need to be aware of the culture that we're living in. We need to engage it so that we can communicate the gospel. But the question is then, how do we do that? How do we live faithfully as exiles? Well, we need to be faithful to God even when it's unpopular or even in the midst of opposition. We need to stand up for the truth even if we're standing alone. We need to be in the Word, right? We need need the sword of the Spirit. We need the the Word of God, which is that sharp double-edged sword, right? Jesus promises to the one who is victorious that he will give some of the hidden manna, right? Manna was the way that God provided daily for his people in the wilderness. And they had to go out each day and collect it, right? They couldn't store it up for future use or else it would spoil. They needed to go out each day and collect some for themselves. The same is true for for God's word. We need to be in God's word daily. It's not enough to just store up some on Sunday morning and hope that it lasts for the week. We need to be in God's word every day for ourselves, being encouraged, being sustained, being nourished so that we can engage the culture, not compromise with it. We also need to pray for the welfare of the city. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that that we should pray that all sorts of petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Right? Jesus says I'm not taking I'm not praying that they be taken out of the world but that they that you protect them in the world. Right? We need to pray also for the communities, the neighborhoods, the states, the country that we live in, right? Pray for the leaders, especially those that you disagree with, right? And those that you support, pray for them that they may that we may live peaceful and godly, li- peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That we may spread the good news of the gospel in the communities that we live in. Right, the reality is that all Christians will be foreigners and exiles in the world. Will always be a remnant, the minority. Don't expect that to change. The question is, though, how to live for Christ, how to advance the gospel, and how to love our neighbor in the midst of the secular culture that opposes the truth. That's where our hope is. That's our goal as Christians. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the hope of your word that no matter what we face, even in a world that opposes your truth, we know that you are with us, that you call us to be faithful to you. And Lord, you call us to engage the culture so that we may spread the gospel. Amen. Amen. As we close our service today, I invite you to stand with us and sing our closing prayer song, Blessed Be Your Name.
1: be your name, blessed be your name, when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name, every blessing blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise, when the darkness. Still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name, when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all at Blessed be Your name. Blessed be Your name on the road marked with suffering, for there's pain in the offering. Blessed be Your name. Every blessing You pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness. name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed
3: be your name. Amen. Now may the love of God, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may go in peace.
1: I was walking the wayside, Lord. Chasing the high life Try to satisfy SHUT